Hey, what's up everybody? This is Life Coach D coming at you with the Live Series. And this particular topic is a real conversation, episode three. This will be my final excerpt on this particular subject, but I will talk to you as promised about the new Jim Crow. I will talk about other areas of systemic racism. I will bring up some more historical facts and points that lead us up to where we are today in 2020, all leading up to the brutal murder that was witnessed by all of us of George Floyd in Minnesota. Stay tuned. We'll dig in. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Life Coach D coming at you, and I wanted to give a disclaimer before entering this particular podcast as it relates to people who may be offended by certain language pertaining to racial discrimination, racial inequality, racial inequity, and other terms that may be highly offensive. If you are one who may be offended by this type of subject matter, I encourage you not to listen to this final excerpt of this particular podcast. Last but certainly not least, I do want you to know that everything that the live series will discuss as a whole does not always deal with racial issues or racism but this particular episode will i can't breathe let me live there's more to my life than this when will my life Considered equal. I can't run, I can't sleep. Why can't I walk down the street? Every day it feels like there's another sequel. My life matters. Why do you see a threat? My life matters. You judge me and so much inequality, racism, police brutality, I matter. My life matters. The incredible Marvin Sapp. Liberate the minds of men, and ultimately, you will liberate their bodies. Marcus Garvey. So let's get right into it, everybody. So as I begin to finalize this conversation, I wanted to bring up some very pertinent dates and some very um, familiar things for some, but maybe not familiar for others, because America has done an amazing job on teaching his story instead of history. So the first thing that I want to bring up took place on March 7th, 1965, and it's considered Bloody Sunday. And it's when about 600 marchers led by Martin Luther King were on their way on Route 80. Uh, and then they were on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. They got as far as probably not even a mile or two in, and they were attacked by police with clubs and tear gas. Sounds familiar, I'm sure. Um, this is a major thing because a lot of people were uh, actually hurt during that time, but they called it Bloody Sunday because it was, I mean, a massacre. The cops just went crazy. And once again, this is the, the way white folks have always viewed black folks in America. And this was huge um, during that time. And I was in Selma, Alabama. Once again, that was on March 3rd, or excuse me, March 7th, 1965. Uh, I want to bring up this next group of people because they were definitely uh, radical. They were revolutionary people at that time. Um, and they stood up for injustice, and but but more than standing up for injustice on, for black people, they definitely 
um, put a plan together to protect black people, to take care of the neighborhood and to really, really do some things. And so these guys, uh, in 1966, they were from Marks College and they started what we know as the Black Panther Party. It was led by Huey, New Huey P. Newton, Bobby Seale, and Albert Howard. These three guys did some amazing things. They had a 10 point uh, system or a 10 point, uh, well, not a scale, but they had 10 major points that they lived by. Uh, the Black Panther Party, of course, um, was huge during that time, but as big as they were, the government feared them. Because never in this country's history, or even dating back even to, to slave times, had they ever wanted black people to be united. Because once we were united, or once we are united, we are an amazing force. So what they did, like in most situations, is they had somebody planted in there, and it basically dismantled from the inside. And these guys ended up uh, not surviving, and it, it, it was, you know, anyway, it was a sad, a sad reality because uh, America has never wanted black men to be armed, although it's quote unquote written in the Constitution. But like I said before, the Constitution wasn't written for black people until it's ratified. Uh, that Constitution that we follow um, is not for us because we were not a part of the conversation because we were considered property back then. And even as I was talking to before about slave codes, one of the slave codes um, stated that if a slave talked, uh, uh, excuse me, turned in another slave, or not even a slave, a free man. If a free man told of some things that, uh, any type of insurrection, that they would be promoted. And this is what happened with the Black Panther Party. They got somebody in there, what we would call a modern day Sambo, and basically infiltrated from inside. And as I, I continue on, the next person I'll bring up is Asada Shakur. She was also a revolutionary. Uh, she's part of the Black Liberation Movement, and she, um, was huge in some of uh, the things that took place that, from a radical perspective. Uh, in my personal belief, I believe she was set up just like I believe a lot of people were set up by the federal government. Um, and we know this to be true because a lot of things have come to light that the federal government has kept hidden, sealed. And then 40, 50, 60 years later, we find out people were innocent and we find out these different things. It's like Martin Luther King. Most people don't know that his family received a lawsuit. They actually won a lawsuit because they sued the government for a wrongful death. Most people think that Martin Luther King died on the on the balcony of the bridge he was shot, or excuse me, on the balcony where he was shot, but he did not die there. He died later at the hospital, and we do believe that uh, he was smothered to death after a uh, doctor came in um, and spit on him and said, don't let that nigger live. And, um, you know, it is what it is, and I'm using this language because this is the language of our country. This is the language they, they love to use, and some people still use it today. So anyway, going back to Asada Shakur, um, she was accused, um, convicted actually, of, of a murder of a, a sheriff. Um, she was put in jail, but she escaped in 1983, I believe it is. Looking at my notes here. Yeah, 1983, and she ended up over in Cuba where she has remained uh, for years and years and years. And there's a letter that she wrote and explaining everything that went down and how she was set up. You know, the events um, that led up to it, um, even in her record days, they accused her of doing things that she wasn't could, could, could not possibly have done. And they also had her at places that could not possibly she could not have possibly been at because the places didn't exist but obviously um when they when the government wants to get you or when the powers that be want to get you they will and so anyway she she ended up being taken down so the next person i'll talk about 
and I'll kind of speed up to modern day after this person is Malcolm X. Malcolm X was an amazing leader as well. Um, he influenced thousands upon thousands of people. And once again, the federal government was mad, excuse me, scared of him. And they made sure that he was infiltrated from the inside out and he ended up being killed as well. Um, what I love about Malcolm X is he was the type of guy that was like, we gonna do what we gotta do by any means necessary. So he was uh, absolutely a radical. He believed in empowering black people. He believed in black power. And, and all of the above. And so, you know, he submerged in the 60s as well. You know, so on one, one side, Martin Luther King was preaching nonviolence and, you know, do things in a peaceful way. Um, Malcolm X is on the other end of that spectrum, like, hey, they're gonna bust upside our heads, we're gonna bust them back, back upside their heads. And so, you know, to a certain extent, you know, people will say that type of method, you know, wouldn't work or doesn't work. But um, if there's any violence to be uh, duplicated, we learned it from America. America treated us violently as black people um, from the very uh, first ship that came over here. We were beat, we were hung, um, you name it, castrated. Uh, and a lot of people don't want to talk about this, but this is this country's history and this is the sickness and the disease that we have not talked about. And we wonder why we're in the state that we are today in 2020. George Floyd was a huge reason why um, the conscience of America should have been shook once again, but there's a lot of a history, um, like I said, that we don't want to talk about that is horrific, but going back to the whole violence and, and Malcolm X saying by any means necessary, we learned that violence from, from white America. Uh, so if we are violent in any way, shape, that's the form, we were taught it very, very well. Um, and we had some good teachers and that would be white America, but that's this country's history. I'll be back to continue with some other things. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. James Baldwin. So as promised, I want to talk about the new Jim Crow. The new Jim Crow has to do with the school to prison pipeline and mass incarceration that has dissipated the black community. If you look back in the late 70s, early 80s, really the more, more mid 80s to late 80s with the crack cocaine epidemic, it destroyed the black community. Uh, many would say that crack cocaine ended up in the black communities under some very interesting circumstances. I've always said it's very, very interesting that expensive guns and expensive drugs ends up ends up in neighborhoods where you know we couldn't even afford textbooks some, some of us went to school with textbooks that our parents had and so it just blew my mind how you know those type of things would end up in communities very very expensive guns and i do believe it's part of genocide and also part of the system that wanted to continue to have black on black crime and, and black people kill each other i think the mindset is, is hey they kill themselves we don't have to worry about killing them once again, I'm making these very blanket statements, but you have to understand statistics, history, and even um, the dichotomy in the mindset of white America today prove some of the things that I'm saying, although very facetious and, and what seems to be stereotypical, but really uh, actually speaks louder than words. But you have to understand that mass incarceration, like I said earlier, dissipated the black community. Black men start being locked up in, in crazy ways. And if you look across the board, some of the things they were going to jail for was insane. Um, and it was all a part of the crack cocaine epidemic. So the school to prison pipeline, if I'll give a little history on that, it pretty much set black, black youth up 
to go straight from school to jail uh, with all of the impoverished situations and all the uh, lower socioeconomicals and the inadequacies, inadequacies and also um, the, the, the disproportionate uh, wealth uh, gap between blacks and whites have less left the black community pretty much desolate. So this is basically the school to prison pipeline um, in a nutshell, like pretty much kids went from school to jail. And if you look at mass incarceration, that is the new Jim Crow. So we went from being um, under the law and separate to them literally putting us in prison. And there's a couple people that I have no respect for at all. Um, and one of those particular individuals that everybody is calling the GOAT nowadays, he has major stock in privatized prisons. And I just cannot respect somebody uh, that looks like me who would profit off of people that look like me being in jail. And statistically, we are the highest rate of those that are um, put into jail and with the with the most uh, improportionate uh, sentences. You look at the sentences of black people as opposed to white people and we're sentenced way heavier. The residue and the remnant of those that were jailed during the mid to late 80s is ridiculous like people serve 20 to 25 years for for weed marijuana possession and this is something that's illegal and they're not even thinking twice about going back and pardoning their sentences because they have bogus charges but on the flip side you have white folks that get caught with cocaine that do less time than black folks you got people who murder us that get less time than people who went to jail for for weed possession and so these are the things that people want to want to talk about. These are the things that's easy for people to turn ahead to and not acknowledge. But this is definitely a part of the new Jim Crow. And so I wanted to stick to my word and wanted to get the information about the new Jim Crow. It's mass incarceration um, in this day and time. And also, if you guys didn't know this, the Constitution allows for slavery. The only way that a person can still be enslaved in this day and time constitutionally is if you're in prison and this is why they have free labor going and this is why at a disproportionate rate you see us African Americans in prison once again uh, being slaves because we top the charts as, as, as it pertains to percentages of people in prison today I want to give credit to Michelle Alexander for the book The New Jim Crow Mass Incarceration in the age of colorblindness. This is a great read. I once heard it said, this is how white America views black men. We are dismissed, we're discredited, we're demonized, and we're destroyed. Yesterday I was watching the news. There was a newscast from Van Nuys and some looters we're trying to get into a shop. And so people who live in the community who were black flagged down the police to stop the looters. But when the police showed up, they immediately handcuffed the people who flagged them down. The reporter had to tell them, no, not these guys, those guys. Imagine how frustrating it must be to get handcuffed or frisked or pulled over just because you're black. I mean, even if the cop looks in the car and goes, okay, everything's fine. Have a nice day. How do you swallow that and move on? I don't know about you, that would make me furious. And now imagine what it must be like to be brutalized and killed and scared that those things might happen. What happened to George Floyd was on video. I mean, how often does this happen without a camera recording the whole thing? It sounds to me like it happens all the time. We just don't see it unless it gets posted online. 
And then we're shocked. And black people are like, why are you shocked? We've been telling you this has been happening over and over again. Things like implicit bias, stereotypes, racial discrimination are all terms that reflect the way black people are seen by society today. It can be particularly noted that this is the way cops see, view us, and treat us. As a mentor for years, I've mentored a guy who was now a policeman. He told me that in this training, they're trained that black people are immediate danger. And this can be seen. One of the things that has gone very quietly and you don't hear about it in media at all, but we as black people know that it's very true, is the way black women are treated in this country. I've seen black women treated very disrespectfully as it pertains to cops. I've seen black women body slammed. I've seen black little girls body slammed. And I've seen black women face planted to the ground. And we know this to be true in the disrespect by cops. If I bring up a person like Sandra Bland, and even as of late, Breonna Taylor, who was brutally murdered, and even the suspicion that is surrounded by Sandra Bland's death can all be noted as the way cops view black women. Also, as it pertains to Trump and the way he treats black reporters, black women reporters specifically, he's very disrespectful. He's very dismissive. And he talks to them in a condescending manner. And this is also well uh recognized and can be noted as it pertains to the way cops treat black women i would note that the way black women are treated are not the same way that white women are treated white women are not treated with such anger and aggression um, they're not treated with a lack of respect or protect and serve of the mindset and this is something that we have to address because in order for us to be change agents in order for us to move forward in order for us to want to have a real conversation we must address the way black women are treated I'm bringing this up because it's very, very quietly spoken. You don't hear a lot about it. Even in the movement of women right now, you still don't see how black women are treated or talked about as well or as equally as you hear about white women and what has happened to them. And this has to be addressed. We have to speak about this because I view black women as queens and this is how I treat black women. But it is very clear that this is not how society sees or treats black women. And as a final note, in general, black men and women are highly disrespected and it is a way we're viewed. And this is also systemic. But this must be mentioned. Change will only come when we're willing to have a real conversation about these things. I think I do now. and I think I at least understand some of it. And here's what I think it is. People who are white, we don't have to deal with negative assumptions being made about us based on the color of our skin. It rarely happens, if ever. Whereas black people experience that every day like every day and please don't tell me you don't ever make assumptions about people based on the color of their skin because i just i don't believe it we all do i know i have i'm embarrassed to say it but i have and so imagine if you can how frustrating it must be to have to prove yourself to be something other than what people assume you probably are every day sometimes multiple times every day Yesterday I was watching the news. There was it is certain in any case that ignorance allied with power is the most ferocious enemy justice can have. James Baldwin. And so, yes, I used it back then. I've continued to use it. I've talked about the president. The president is a racist. As a matter of fact, I've known that the president is a dangerous human being, a would-be dictator who would move in the direction that he's doing. Many people were shocked 
uh, when he came out and walked out to that church uh, with the Bible in his hand, uh, with uh, the military backing him up, and having all of those protesters basically gassed, uh, and in addition to that, threatened, I'm not shocked. And I'm mm. not surprised because I warned America that this mm. was a dangerous man, a would-be dictator. Uh, this was a man who has no conscience. This is a man that should never have been uh, in the highest seat of the land. And so I'm hopeful that the more he defines himself and the more he's rolling out, threatening all of these young people, it's not just blacks that he's threatening now. He's threatening these young white children, young people whose parents perhaps are frightened that they're out on the street, probably don't want them there. And they must right. realize that if this president dares to pull the military out on them, that their children are in danger, black, yeah. white, green, whatever color. And so uh, while we are making movement here, I think we're on the third grade change. We've got to be worried about this president. hope yeah. that he does not serve this country another four years. For those of you who are not familiar with that voice, that is Congressman Maxine Waters, who has been an advocate for racial um, change. And she's spoken to injustices and she's spoken from day one of this current presidency, the danger that this man possesses. Just wanted to give her her due just hands down mad respect. Uh, those of us in the black community call her Auntie Maxine, but Maxine Waters is an amazing voice in a time such as now. Her consistency is commendable. With your, with your tweets today, are you concerned that you might be stoking more racial violence or more no, racial no, discord? Magus says, make America great again. These are people that love our country. I have no idea if they're going to be here. I was just asking. But I have no idea if they're going to be here. But MAGA is, make America great again. By the way, they love African-American people. They love black people. MAGA loves the black people. What the hell are you saying? You know, four years ago, this was Trump's pitch to the black people. And I say, honestly, what do you have to lose? Not going to get any worse. Well, it took a while. Adam, you have a, uh, a new piece. It's titled Trump gave police permission to be brutal. Uh, and let me remind everyone of what the president said to a group of law enforcement. This was back in 2017. When you see these thugs being thrown into the back of a paddy wagon, you just see them thrown in rough. I said, please don't be too nice. Like when you guys put somebody in the car and you're protecting their head, you know, the way you put their hand up. Like, don't hit their head and they've just killed somebody. Don't hit their head. I said, you can take the hand away, okay? Well, first of all, he's... I mean, when you look at that video, it's actually kind of frightening to see police officers, people in uniform, clapping and laughing and cheering the president for telling them essentially that they should mistreat suspects in custody. And remember, these are people who, you know, you don't know if they've committed a crime or not necessarily He's saying, well, you don't really have to respect their rights. Uh, and that's not just a matter of presidential rhetoric. Um, as uh, you know, one of the first things that Jeff Sessions did when he became attorney general, he it was that he said the, the federal government is not going to oversee police departments anymore. 
um, after the Rodney King riots, uh, the Congress passed a law saying that um, the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department can look at police departments to determine whether there is a pattern or practice of discrimination. And the Obama administration was particularly aggressive at looking into police departments and making sure that they were following the rules as far, you know, when, and we're talking about the rules, we're talking about constitutional rights, that they were respecting the constitutional rights of the residents of their jurisdictions. And the police unions really didn't like that. And one of the things that they did was they saw Donald Trump and they said, well, this guy is obviously, he's in tune with what we, what, what we want, what we believe, and we're going to support him. And their reward for that was that Jeff Sessions said, well, we're just not going to look at these problems anymore. If there are problems with police abuse, you know, it's, it lowers morale for the Justice Department to look into these problems. It suggests that, you know, police are mean or racist. So we're just not going to do it. We're just not going to look. We're not going to try and find out whether there are any problems at all. And when you combine that with the president actively encouraging police uh, to mistreat people in their custody, uh, then you can get a situation like this where a man can kneel, a police officer can kneel on another man's neck uh, for nine minutes on camera and not feel like he's going to get in any kind of trouble at all. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Laura. I appreciate it. Up next, I'm going to talk with NBA players. For many years, we've been told to be quiet. It's never the right time to say something, and so we've always been silenced. I'll give a couple examples. The March at Selma, we marched silently. We're met on a bridge just a mile away on Route 80 with tear gas and dogs. Number two, civil rights movement. Martin Luther King led people and they marched. We were met with, with dogs and water hoses. Number three, Muhammad Ali spoke very uh, adamantly about how wrong the Vietnam War was. His belt was taken from him. Number four, we have Tommy Smith and we have John Carlos who silently protested at the 1968 Olympics with the power fist, letting them know that they were in solidarity with the mayhem and the chaos and the murderous acts that took place against black people they were met with opposition. They were told to be quiet even though they silently protested. So, so many years of silence um, produced the Long Hot Summer. And if any of you are not familiar with the Long Hot Summer, it took place in 1967. There were 159 riots throughout the month of June and July. And this all um, had to do with the, them trying to silence black people. Once again, black people were trying to make their voice. Um, riots were everywhere. And this is from years of silence. And so the crazy part about it is 53 years later, we're literally crying out about the same oppression, racial discrimination, uh, racial inequity, um, white privilege, and so on and so forth. And people still wonder why this is going on. And I would dare to say, if you have no clue as to what's going on and you're still wondering why, then you're absolutely a part of the problem. When people show you who they are, believe them. Dr. Maya Angelou. So I must bring this up and I just kind of hit it lightly before, but I definitely want to spend a little bit more pointed time. So I brought up Colin Kaepernick and I talked about, talked about him taking a knee. I talked about him sitting down and very, very strategically wanting to do his part as a black man in this country because he felt like police brutality and the killing of black men in America was wrong. 
he consulted. I do believe it was a green beret. And he said, well, in the, in the service, we take a knee in respect for those who have fallen in the line of duty. And he said, Colin, if you really want to show homage and respect to those who are falling at the hands of cops in this country, and you can do this in a peaceful way, take a knee. This man was met with every bit of opposition there could have been that came to him. He simply said, I'm taking a knee as a sign of protest. You know, people told him he shouldn't do that on a football field. Nobody wants to see that. He needs to go somewhere. He's being paid too much money. How dare he do that? And of course, they spent the whole scenario like most people do to avoid the truth. And they began to talk about how it was disrespectful to this country. And he was disrespecting the armed forces. And I must give a caveat right now because a lot of people don't know this. And I will lead into my next segment. Most people, if you're very, very aware of what's going on, you choose to be aware. You have to understand this money is ran, excuse me, this country is ran by money and power. Before 2004, football players didn't even have to come out until the actual game started. Why is this? Because the national, um, the excuse me, all four, uh, uh, um, all four, uh, my God, chapters of the the armed forces, the, the armed forces. I'm sorry, began to pay the NFL to promote the Army, Air Force, Marines, and the Navy. They didn't even have to come out before 2004. So this whole notion that is disrespectful in this than the other, it's all about money. And all Colin Ka Kaepernick did was call people to look at that and say, hold on, you're interrupting our money, so we're going to challenge you. And from the highest office of this country, in a very disrespectful way, the president of the United States, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue is where he occupies, literally said, would you love it when one of these NFL players come and disrespect our flag to say, get those son of a bitches out of here. Get them out of here, you're fired. And I do quote, that's what he said. Why would he say that? He literally called African-American mothers bitches. This is coming from the president of the United States. And the fallout after that was utterly ridiculous. But when it's all said and done, here's somebody once again protesting in a silent way and somehow it was wrong. Listen to my next segment. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag to say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now, out, he's fired. Now, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell released a statement just a few minutes ago. The NFL and our players are at our best when we help create a sense of unity in our country and our culture. There is no better example than the amazing response from our clubs and players to the terrible natural disasters we've experienced over the last month. Divisive comments like these demonstrate an unfortunate lack of respect for the NFL, our great game, and all of our players, and a failure to understand the overwhelming force for good our clubs and players represent in our communities now the hypocrisy of that statement by roger goodell because what happened was they end up letting colin kaepernick go so many other things happen and even now in 2020 they have the nerve to want to say they're going to back all of these causes that have to do with black you know um excuse me with black causes and things that that will help to unify but when colin kaepernick took that knee 
when he silently protests, when he brought to the um, forefront what was going on, he was ostracized. And as we say in the black community, he was whiteballed and he was out of a job. So what he also did not do is call Donald Trump out on his crap. Instead, he made a blanket statement and his statement was followed by not backing Colin Kaepernick at the time for his silent protest or the other NFL players. He gave a bunch of sound bites. He talked the talk, but his actions spoke very loud over his words. Head of the NFL said, yeah, maybe we was wrong. Football players, maybe they did have the right to peacefully protest. Well, don't apologize. Give Colin Kaepernick a job back. with some empty apology, take a man's livelihood, strip a man down of his talents, and four years later when the whole world is marching, all of a sudden you go and do a FaceTime talking about you sorry? Minimizing the value of our lives. You sorry then repay the damage you did to the career you stood down because when Colin took a knee, he took it for the families in this building. And we don't want an apology. We want him repaired. So as you can see, the Reverend Al Sharpton very eloquently communicated the need for repair for Colin Kaepernick. This brings up a broader conversation that pertains to reparations and the need for this discussion to take place. It's also been a huge misnomer out of the mouths of white people that black people are only looking for handouts. We've never asked for handouts. We've only asked for a handout. So as I said before, racism has nothing to do with anything less than power, position, and economics. And this is something that we must look at. Last thing I'll say here is I find, I find it very interesting that when this conversation comes up, people talk about there's not enough money. But somehow in this pandemic, they found trillions upon trillions of dollars to fund airlines and businesses and cruise ships. So there is money. It's just a matter of where they want this money to be allocated towards and what it wants this money to do. And it simply is nothing that they want to do to give a hand up for 401 years of oppression and systemic racism. Think about it. I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. James Baldwin. If you can only be tall because somebody's on their knees, then you have a serious problem. And my feeling is white people have a very, very serious problem. And they should start thinking about what they can do about it. Take me out of it. Very powerful words spoken by Chloe Anthony Walford Morrison, also known as Tony Morrison. Born February 18th, 1931. She was an amazing woman who had an amazing life full of accomplishments. 
She has much respect in the literary world, and I encourage anyone who wants to understand clearly the plight of blacks in this country to go and pick up some of her writings. She passed away in 2019, but her legacy will live on through all of her work. Well, you know, I have the ability uh, to call it like I see it. And so I know that's unusual, uh, particularly with elected officials. And I also know uh, that the right wing, the white supremacists and the KKK had shut down uh, using the word and claimed that those of us who would dare use the word were basically racist ourselves. And so for a number of years, particularly elected officials uh, were squeamish about using the word racism. I've never backed down from it. And I think now uh, that the world really knows and understands what it is. And so I'm, um, I'm pleased that we can openly talk about racism and get into a discussion about what it is and what it takes to get rid of it. I love America more than any other country in this world. And exactly for that reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. James Baldwin. Ms. Jane Elliott, an amazing and prolific teacher who took it upon herself to really, really roll reverse and let white folks know what it feels like to be in a black man's shoes. Listen to some of her different advice that she's given along with some stories. It's truly encouraging, but it's also eye-opening and will challenge you to your core. Because he was, he was trying to make things better for all of us, not just for black people. And we killed him because he and Malcolm X were coming closer together. And if they had united, they would have changed this situation, make no doubt about that. So they both had to die and they were killed. And so I had to go into my classroom the next morning and explain to my students why Martin Luther King Jr. was dead. And I watched television that night, and I saw Walter Cronkite interviewing three, three leaders of the black community. And he said to them, when our leader was killed, his widow held us together. Who's going to keep your people in line? I was shocked and dismayed that he would ask those black males that question. So I changed the channel. And there was Dan Rather saying to three leaders of the black community, don't you black, you Negroes, don't you Negroes think you should feel sympathy for us white people because we can't feel the sorrow at the anger, the anger at this killing that you black people can. I, at that moment, I wadded up the teepee that I was ironing on the floor. I threw it into the closet. And at that moment, I decided that not only was I going to teach my students the Indian prayer the next day, oh, great spirit, keep me from ever judging a man till I've walked in his moccasins, I was going to arrange to have it answered for them. I was going to allow some of my students to walk in the shoes of a child of color in my classroom for a day. That's the thing that makes this exercise necessary is the fact that we in education support the myth of one race and the myth of the rightness of whiteness. Um, how when, you have, when you're going to talk to people of color, the first thing you don't say is, when I see people, I don't see people as black or brown or red or yellow. I just see people as people. And teachers in schools all over the United States say that every year. At least several teachers are saying that to their students. 
but they say, I don't see people as black or brown or red or yellow, but they never put the word white in there because it's all right to see white, you see. And when you talk to a person of color, you have no right to say, when I see you, I don't see you black. And you have no right to say to some ugly female like me, I'm colorblind and I've had dozens and dozens of white women walk up to me and say, I'm not racist, I'm, I'm colorblind. And I say, I knew that you were colorblind before you said it, because if you weren't colorblind, you wouldn't wear that shirt with those pants. Now, they, they take exception to that and they walk around way very quickly and very angrily because I have accused them of lying to their very face. People who say to me, I don't see color, or who say to a black person, I don't see you as black, are saying, I have the freedom to deny the largest organ inch by inch on your body, which is your skin. Now, if you can't see my skin, you can't see me. It's time for people to take those phrases out of their lexicon. What do you say? It's practically what happens to people of other color groups in the United States of America. We don't cut them in little pieces. We kill them in front of cameras. What steps can we take to fix this problem? You've been doing it for 50 years. Educate yourself. You didn't get educated in school. You got indoctrinated in school. Now use what you learned in school to educate yourself. Um, if there's one thing that people can take from what you're saying, what would you like it to be? I'd like it to be there's only one race on the face of the earth, the human race. We are all members of the same race. You and I are 30th to 50th cousins. Whether you like it or not, you are one of my 30th to 50th cousins because we have the same ancestor back there 300,000 to 500,000 years ago, and they were black. The only reason you have light skin and the only reason I have lighter skin is because those black people... Those brilliant black people left the area of the equator and moved, and as they moved farther and farther from the equator, their bodies produced less and less melanin, so their skin, their hair, and their eyes got lighter. They didn't become members of a different race. They sim simply became people whose luck, whose bodies reacted to the natural environment. I, I can Very powerful information, as I mentioned earlier, by Jane Elliott. She brought a lot of things to the forefront. She talked about a lot of things that are systemic, a lot of things that are uh, inherently biased and just really, really good information. And remember, we have a duty and obligation to debunk things that are not true. We have a duty and obligation to speak upon things that have historically been called correct and or right. And we have a duty and obligation as coaches, teachers, ministers, parents, uncles, you name it, to duplicate the things that we know that are right so that those that are watching us will reproduce that behavior and not anything less than that. I'll be back. Children have never been very good at listening to their elders, but they have never failed in emulating them. James Baldwin. So as I'm coming to a quick close here, I wanted to be specific and pointed at dealing with the church. Woe to white evangelicals who refuse to speak truth during this time. Woe to white evangelicals who turn their heads and say nothing about what's going on as it pertains to cops and their interaction with black people in this country. Woe to the church that will choose a political side, preach about it, bring people in that will talk about it and forget that there's a separation of church and state. Woe to prosperity preachers who are talking about everything other than what they should be talking about. And finally, woe to anybody 
who are hiding under the cloth and you don't speak truth to power and you don't stand up for those who need to be stood up for. Woe to all of you. Woe to those who are being profitable voices instead of prophetic voices. You think more about money than you do people's lives. And finally, there is a reminder that you must know to you that claim to be the followers of God. The Bible says that judgment starts in the house of God first. So I encourage you to understand that as you're not doing what I believe is the true work of God, judgment starts with us first and then it proceeds out. The world is already judged. It's not supposed to be godly. It's not supposed to stand for morality or character, but the church should. So that's my warning to the church because we cannot leave you out of the conversation. If we were truly being what we read about in Matthew, the fifth chapter, about being the light of the world and the salt of the earth, many of the things we're facing right now, we wouldn't even have to deal with if the church was truly being the church. Enough with going to a building and being amongst a whole bunch of people that look like you and not making that exterior. You're keeping it insular. And once again, woe be unto you who will not stand when you should be. So there you have it. Three very long episodes of purposeful information that I took my time with. Even in this particular episode, there are a lot of sound bites that I purposely chose to put in because I thought they were pertinent to the discussion. For any who are in my slew of influence, you have an ear um, for me or you are following this podcast. I thought of my duty and my obligation to speak on these very real issues for such a time as now. I believe that we are at a perfect storm and we are at a place where things can change for the better if we continue to listen, be consistent in what we're doing, and be the people when you see something wrong, you say something about it. I would encourage white folks to be outraged. I would encourage white folks to be in to say something because it is it is in, at that point where everyone is saying something is wrong that we truly see change happening. Last but certainly not least, I will put a shameless plug out there for my book, The Mentality of Man, from an African-American perspective. I take a look on what racism looks like from a natural perspective. I talk about it spiritually and I talk about reconciliation and what can be done to make us be better. If you would like to see um, how to purchase that book, please go to www.dfgcreativeexpress.com and I'm also available on Amazon. I'll be back with my final and closing remarks. Hey, what's up everybody? You've reached Life Coach D with the Live series. This particular series called A Real Conversation has been one that was very difficult to record, but I felt it was very necessary to speak truth to power. I thought it was very necessary to continue to sear the conscience of America. Last but certainly not least, I wanted to give everybody an opportunity to hear the cries of those who have been oppressed, including myself, for years. When an opportunity comes to be about change, we must do it. When an opportunity comes to speak truth to power, we must do it. Finally, when an opportunity comes to be a part of the change that you want to see, we must do it. Remember, if you're upset, if you've been offended, if truth has pushed you to a place you did not want to be and it's uncomfortable, that means you're supposed to do something. Remember, life is very valuable.